This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The threat of fentanyl to communities across the country and here in Hawaii has never been so great. Next week, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, will begin training Hawaii's first responders. Police, paramedics, sheriffs, and firefighters will learn the latest about the dangers of this drug produced in Mexico by the world's largest drug cartels. We talked to DEA Special Agent Victor Vasquez about the recent drug take-back event this weekend as it steps up to educate the public about the risks involved with this illicit drug. So the drug take back is twice a year. It's in April and October. We did have one last Saturday, October 29th from 10 to 2. We collected 277 boxes, 3,600 pounds of unused old medications that you know citizens had in their houses that they got rid of it. Why are we involved with that? Because we want to get all that stuff that's unused that maybe you are healed or you don't longer need that medication. Get it out of the house because you don't know when Kids are kids, so they, they might find it and they might not know what it is and take it and maybe look like candy. You know, I just saw something this past week. The Friends TV star, Matthew Perry, said he used to go into people's homes, open houses, and go look in their cabinets for drugs. I mean, it's really kind of scary when you think that someone's got their, their act together and they're addicted. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a way to get the drugs away from those people that are affected by addiction. It's a way to get clean out the house for medications. It's a way to get the word out to the community that one pill can kill. Now we're seeing the fentanyl coming in. I don't see it as prevalent here in the state of Hawaii that we see it in other states. And that's because you know, we're surrounded by the Pacific Ocean. So it, it offers some kind of a protection. You know, it's not getting driven into the state. Right across it's, the border, like right. it would be in California. Uh, in California, we're seeing fentanyl pills. We're seeing 400,000, 300,000 bags, seizures at a time. Now, you're going up to a million at a time from the L.A. Field Division, where one pill can kill you. Just imagine, you know, a million pills, and it's very dangerous. DEA has no correlation with these fentanyl pills being colored and associated to Halloween. It is a way to hide it from law enforcement. So you see that at the port of entry, oh, it's Skittles or blocks of Legos. But that's just a way of for these criminals to hide it from detection at the port of entry or at the airport. You know, the criminals are, are criminals that they're going to want their money. They're not going to hand out pills at, from their house to kids to in Halloween because they're not going to receive any money back. So we understand it's a way for them to hide it from detection, law enforcement presence. Right, So, the, but the risk, parents don't have to worry so much about that. We do it every year, right? We go through our kids' candy and, and we kind of sort, hey, you can have this, not that, or check... Make sure it's sealed from the from the manufacturer. Make sure it's safe, like we do every year. Always be cautious. Again, we have no correlation with it, with Halloween. You folks are also stepping up your visibility in the school. So, so talk about, you know, those kinds of efforts. Correct. We do a uh, Red Ribbon Week in October. Red Ribbon signifies uh, Say No to Drugs. It started back in 1985 with uh, President Reagan and Nancy Reagan. It's a way to get the word out to our kids in school, whether it's 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade. Just did one this morning to one of our local high schools. We did two last uh, week. We're reaching out to other schools. If you're a school or a principal that wants DEA to come and spread the word in your school, reach out to us. We have staff. We have information for the teachers, for the students, to kind of make them aware of the dangers of drugs, specifically fentanyl. What is fentanyl, right? So it's a synthetic opioid. The pharmaceutical grade is prescribed to you by the doctor. 
the illicit is manufactured by the criminals, specifically the drug cartels based in Mexico. So it's through sourcing of the precursors from China into Mexico. These cartels are producing it in massive amounts, whether colored or uncolored. They're pushing it up through the, mostly by the port of entry and southwest border. You're seeing large amounts of seizures, up to a million pills at a time, three, four hundred thousand at the port of entry. So that's, that's what California or Arizona and uh, the border states with Mexico are facing right now. But it is making its way to Hawaii. So it's DEA and, and working with our local state and federal partners to identify. We're doing buy walks at the street level to identify the local criminals that are pushing this out, whether it's a nightclub or on the street, on the corner or in the park. We're out there identifying these individuals in a way to find out who their source of supply is, right? Whether it's California or what base in California they're receiving their supply from and working with our offices in California and throughout the U.S. to further identify and further prosecute these people. And weren't some of these drugs coming from China, too? They being manufactured over there? The precursors are coming from China into Mexico. Now, the cartels of well, we have some information that the cartels are now recruiting chemists in Mexico to produce their own precursors to kind of cut off the Chinese. So it's a large enterprise that these two cartels, now they're the Sinaloa cartel and the cartel de Jalisco New Generation, the biggest cartels in the world, are both out of Mexico. And these are the ones pushing the fentanyl, whether it's in heroin and cocaine or in pill forms, whether blue or or colored. Now, some people here, whether they're prescribed by their doctors, they might not know they're getting a fake pill, fake Oxycontin or a fake Percocet. They just want to, you know, relieve their pain. But if they get it from the street, one pill can kill because that pill can be laced with fentanyl. So even unwitting or unknowingly, you're killing. And then what about the recent cases where we've had the deaths and the arrests? I mean, I know some of that's still working its way through the legal system, but, you know, it's kind of scary. The first responders, we're, DEA is bringing in training. It's another way that DEA is helping the community understand or fighting this, is to train our first responders. We have one coming up November 7th, 8th, and 9th. Four first responders, we're in partnership with the Honolulu Police Department, Maui Police Department, Kauai Police Department, Hawaii Police Department, Sheriff's Department. We are all-inclusive on this. We Obviously, we need everybody on board, and we have everybody on board, and we, are, we appreciate everybody's partnership with our locals. They are paramount in this fight because they know the streets. They know, you know, where the criminals hang out, and, and as DEA, we need that support. So first responders training, we have another training coming up in January for overall how to target these criminals from the bottom up and top down get educated on fentanyl and what it is and what the dangers it poses to your family, your kids. One pill can kill. Get it out of your house if you have used up medicine. But be aware, I mean, if you see anybody that could be going through an overdose, there are signs to that, whether clammy skin, difficulty breathing. There's ways to help that, and that's through Narcan. Narcan is a, it reverses the effects of fentanyl, and you can, you can go through HHHRC, which is Hawaii Health and Harm Reduction Center, to gather information on Narcan, how you can obtain it. And also go to dea.gov slash one pill 
that gives you more information of the fentanyl and how, you know, how severe it is affecting our communities. Just be aware and get informed. We did pass a parental guide that tells you, you know, what is fentanyl, 50 times stronger, more stronger than heroin, 100 times stronger than morphine. You know, how your kids in high school are getting exposed to it, you know, through these emojis. Mm. They're using emojis to kind of push it to the kids. Again, if you have a cell phone, criminals have access to you. So the biggest thing is to talk to your kids at home, you know who their friends are, or just be aware. Hey, don't take any pills from anybody if it's not prescribed by your doctor or you didn't get it from a pharmacy. Okay, and again, if there are any schools out there that want to focus on this as a preventative measure, they can just contact the DEA and you folks will go out to their school? Yeah, we'll, we'll schedule whoever works for them, and we're happy to do it. All right. We have tons of information for that. All right, well, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Victor Vasquez, DEA Special Agent with Pacific Region, He was talking about fentanyl and the training that it plans for our first responders starting next week. Kana's campaign website says he is a son of Hawaii. The Republican candidate for the U.S. Congressional District 2 seat touts his native roots and military experience in the intelligence community in an effort to swing voters his way against frontrunner Democrat and veteran lawmaker Jill Takuda. We talked to Akana this morning. He wants to support small businesses and to do more to help our kapuna with the cost of living. First of all, I think we got to understand, I, one, I'm, I'm not a politician, right? I mean, I'm a veteran. I'm a business owner. I've been in civil service worked up at U.S. Pacific Command and in the civil service. And I had that extensive experience, you know, in in the national intelligence with project management opportunities, requirements management. And my last one, my last time was actually dealing with the readiness for the command, for the U.S. Pacific Command. So, again, I'm not looking for a career advancement, but I am focused on, you know, serving and serving leadership and serving the people of Hawaii. And was there any one thing that tipped you over the edge, you know, to say, I'm going to run? Well, you know, I ran in, in 2020, and a lot of it was, you know, I got to looking at where we're going. I, I mean, I served in the military and, and as a civil servant for 25 years, and one of those issues we're always looking at, you know, I was always looking at was freedom, right? I mean, that was a main staple of our, our core values, being a loving freedom and abiding in that freedom. And yet, when you see the degradation of those going away, you've seen people wanting to take away our, say, our First Amendment rights of freedom of speech, freedom of the press, you know, like what you guys are doing, freedom of religion. I mean, my goodness, really, we're going to take these things away from people? Those are key factors. So when it came to me looking at, you know, running in 2020 and now here in 2022, is that based on faith, family, and freedom, my core values. And those were key areas that I thought, man, this is where we could actually be the most benefit and put the best foot forward based on my core values and what we've been doing for most of my life right, as far as serving people. And what do you say to voters out there who m- want to know, you know, where do you stand on Trump? Uh, because there might be voters out there, you know, who would vote for you, you know, based on, you know, where your loyalties lie. I think that the most important thing we can think about is that Trump's not running in 2022. Let's focus on the 2022 election. 
I mean, we have a lot of real problems. I mean, we should be focusing on that, especially in the state and in the federal government. I mean, if you like looking at our inflation, if you look at our consumer price index, if you look at our electric costs, our electric bills going on, you look at the gas prices, all of these things are driving people crazy. If you can go to a Costco, for example, I just was at, I just had a discussion with some folks out in Maui about this, and they were saying that, hey, you know, I used to be able to go to Costco and get two baskets of groceries for like 500 bucks. Now I get one for the same $500. So if you kind of look at that, you go, wow, what does that mean? What is that costing our people? It's costing, right? This inflation, this inflation-driven pricing, as far as for what I did or did not like about Trump, you know, I don't agree with Trump on everything. I just tell people straight up, right? I don't agree with him on everything, but I don't agree with my mom and dad on everything either. I don't agree with my friends on everything. I think the best thing we can be looking at is how can we work together and, and figure out answers? How we figure out solutions to what we were just describing as far as our issues that we have in the state and on the federal government. You know, national security. They said they estimated, I think, they had over 2 million people have crossed the border. Is that an issue? Yeah, that's an issue. We look at our inflation. Consumer price index is up, what, 10.2%? Something to that effect. Let's look at those issues. Why is inflation going up so high? Why are we spending so much money? You and I know, Catherine, that real quick, right? You cannot spend more money than you make. I know I can't spend more money than I make. You can't spend more money than you make because we'll very quickly be in a very high debt situation if we do that. So how is our government able to do that? How are the government able to continue pushing this thing and, and signing checks for the American people and the people of Hawaii? We keep pushing this thing down and then, oh, yeah, we just keep signing blank checks. And then what? More and more debt that we're leaving to our children, a legacy of debt. I mean, let's think about it. They did the... But the Inflation Reduction Act recently, and in that where 87,000 armed IRS agents were approved in that bill. Why do we need 87,000 armed IRS agents for? Anybody got any answers for that? I mean, those are the kind of things we got to look at, right? How about the uh, infrastructure bill that was passed? $1.9 trillion infrastructure bill. Hawaii got $2.8 billion of that $1.9 trillion. That's like 0.004%. In my mind, our legislative body did not do us justice. They did not help us at all. We have an $84 billion infrastructure shortfall in the state of Hawaii that they're not even talking about. Why? Why not? Why aren't we bringing this to our table? But to only get $2.8 billion out of, what, $1.9 trillion? Why didn't they ask for $100 billion? At least ask. Go get it. Let's go. Let's Let's go work for the people of Hawaii because that's who we are supposed to be serving is the people of Hawaii. Well, you know, I don't know about the armed IRS agents. I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. But what do you want to say to people about uh, trying to work across the aisle? You know, there's just so much divisiveness now and there's a real struggle in the House for power. Right. And I think you got to get rid of this divisive language. To include stuff like people talking about people of color or women of color, just get rid of the divisive language and let's talk about us as humans and people. In Hawaii, we have that term, the ho'oponopono, right? And everybody, they think they understand that. But what does that really mean? It's taking a person, sitting down, having a cup of coffee, eating some food, talking about, hey, let's resolve an issue. Let's, let's figure this out, how we can take care of this moving forward. And none of that is coming to the table and yelling at the other person going, oh, you're this or you're that or you're, I can't talk to you because you're a Republican. I can't talk to you because you're a Democrat. I can't talk to you because you're green or you're purple or red or whatever you are. 
I mean, that's just just crazy. Let's just sit down and talk to each other like we're human. I mean, did we forget about that? Did we forget that we're human beings as well? Because that's really what it comes down to. Let's just sit down and talk story. Let's just sit down and say, hey, what's on your mind? What is causing you to be so stressed out about X, Y, Z, or this issue or that issue? That's really what it comes down to. And when it comes to the divisiveness, I don't ask people to agree with me 100% of the time. But I like what Ronald Reagan said is that if you can agree with somebody 80% of the time, guess what? You get an opportunity to move things along a lot quicker than if you don't agree at all. You know, I think folks were very alarmed at what they saw on January 6th. And then, you know, we just saw the attack against Nancy Pelosi's husband. You know, what what do you want to say to voters out there about those incidents, about the violence? Well, the same thing. So let's think about this. January 6th, people all saying it was this big issue, right? There's a controversy there because, one, not all the evidence has been portrayed. We don't know what everybody is seeing. We haven't seen both sides of the story. What we've seen is what the media wants us to see. And we have seen other videos. We have seen other things that allow people to see a different side of the story. But again, the most important thing is we see these things. Let's look at the real information. Let's get the facts. Let's see what's really going on in that before we start making, I'm going to say, rules and say, oh, we're going to we're going to settle ourselves that this is what actually happened. As for, you know, Mr. Pelosi, I'm sorry that happened to him. Sorry he got attacked like that. I don't agree to, you know, having those kind of violence and issues. But I, I mean, I think the most important thing is to remember is that we're all in this fight together. And we need to treat each other with kindness and respect. We need to treat each other as a human element, right? We need to remind ourselves that we're humans. We're, we're all part of the same race, right? We're part of the same race of people. Let's remind ourselves of that. I don't anywhere whatsoever agree with the violence that that gentleman took with that. But all of the facts aren't coming out on that either with regards to Mr. Pelosi. We still need to get information before you start judging. You're so quick to rush to judgment without actually taking a look at all the facts. And not the conspiracy theories or not the the tin hat guys wearing Let's look at the actual facts of the case. And then we can move forward from that before we start judging everyone. What would your priority be uh, if the voters elect you? I touched on some of those bases earlier. We were talking about working out in inflation, working Mm -hmm. at getting that reduced down, the electric costs, the gas costs. All of those things are issues that we need to work on. The biggest issue we have in Congress, in my mind, is Congress keeps forgetting what their job is. And their job is to be doing appropriations to make sure that the country is running. How many times in the past, having worked in the federal government, I can tell you this, Every single time when it came around for the new year to start, we were working on continual resolutions. Not a balanced budget. The budget didn't get approved, didn't get through. So we're working on these continuous resolutions and we're not actually solving anything. We're not solving the problem, right? The next thing I wanna work on is the Hawaiian Homes Commission Act and updating that. This is critical to what we believe, you know, in the Hawaiian community, me being native Hawaiian myself, this is something I believe we have to resolve. And one of those issues is the blood quantum requirement. In case most people don't know, the Hawaiian Homes Commission Act right now required that Hawaiians or native Hawaiians, Kanako Maoli, have a 50% blood quantum in order to be getting a leased land. Well, what happens when there's no more 50% Hawaiian? That was 100 years ago that this thing happened. And today, from what I heard the last number, there's only 27 full-blooded Hawaiians out there. 100% Hawaiian, there's only 27 of those. So that's what we need to be looking at as part of the Congress. We need to fix this and adjust it 
so that we remove the blood quantum requirement from a percentage-based to a genealogical-based one. And we need to get that done. The other thing we need to do is continue Cujillo's legacy with regards to that and move that forward. So those are two of the issues. And, of course, the third one would be the Jones Act. And people don't understand it. I'm looking for just an update and a modernization of the Jones Act. Some people say reject it, repeal it, get rid of it. I don't agree with that. I think the Jones Act serves a purpose. It definitely does. But I do think we need to update it because it's a 1920s act. Let's update that and make it more real for today's world. In 1920, Hawaii wasn't even a state. That was 60 years ago, and we're still operating under the same auspices of what happened in 1920. We need to update this so that we can actually work as a state and we can help lower costs. Grassroots Institute did a study on this, I believe it was back in 2020, and they said the average family in Hawaii with an update to the Jones Act would actually save about $1,800 a year. That may not seem like a lot, but when we see what's going on with inflation and we see what's going on with the consumer price of index in Hawaii, I think that is a lot. It's going to come out to be a lot, $1,800. That's a lot. That was Joe Akana, candidate for U.S. Congressional District 2, a former veteran who spent 25 years in the intelligence community and who was running on the Republican ticket. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. On the next Fresh Air, 67 years after 14-year-old Emmett Till was lynched in Mississippi while visiting relatives, the new film Till is in theaters. It centers on his mother, who insisted his mutilated body be photographed for the world to see, which helped spark the civil rights movement. The film's director, Chinoya Chuku, is our guest. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, providing comprehensive health care open to all. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story today about a snafu that's holding up grants to nonprofits across the state. A Civil Beat reporter, Blaze Lovell, joins us for today's reality check. Good morning. Hey, morning, Catherine. So, you know, we've had this system for decades. What changed? Yeah, so there's this, it almost seems like a really Manini issue in the budget language of of for the state this year, but that little Manini issue has kind of grown into a sort of big problem, especially for these nonprofits that are waiting for these grant monies. And so the way the legislature appropriated a bunch of the grant funds this year uh, was a little different, and it's really sort of esoteric for, for the normal person. Basically, they put the language that's normally in the budget bill in a separate um, budget document and and worksheet. And now there's a disagreement between the state attorney general's office and the Hawaii lawmakers over where exactly those sentences and that language should actually be. And that disagreement 
is right now it's holding up close to $50 million worth of grant money that was meant for, you know, all these Hawaii nonprofits that applied for them. Many of them wanted to start up some programs and uh, provide certain social services. There's some nonprofits that help with homelessness, help with homeless organizations, others that focus on domestic abuse survivors, and they all wanted to start programs to benefit those populations, but uh, uh, many of them aren't getting all the money that they need because of this hold up in state government. So there's a change in the process that was probably made to try and streamline things, uh, cut through some red tape, but now it's just creating more of a problem. Yeah, that's right. The uh, lawmakers changed the way the, I guess, the path that the money would take. Usually it would go through, you know, dozens of different government offices. Now they want it all to go through one office, the Office of Community Services, um, which has, which now I've been told has more staffing that's supposed to be able to accommodate all this. Uh, but they just can't get, get past this, you know, disagreement over where this, you know, certain language should be, whether it should be in the budget bill or whether it should be in some other document out there. Um, all, all the problems really stem from that. And it's sort of creating a domino effect where, you know, if they don't have that sorted out, then another department won't release the funds for these grants. And it, it sort of puts everyone in a bind over, you know, like I said at the beginning, what's sort of a tiny problem. Well, uh, but it seems like if they're uh, in dispute, that are we going to have to wait till the legislature uh, convenes in January for a fix? It does seem like these nonprofits will have to wait a little bit longer. It doesn't seem likely that the legislature is going to have a special session to fix the language. So that means that we'll need to either wait for the next administration to get things moving or for lawmakers to come back in January and quickly clear things up. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's reality check. Or read the story online at civilbeat.org. Simply put, our next story is a feast. To say that artist Taiji Tobasaki has a lot on his plate is an understatement. The 17-year Hawaii resident didn't start out wanting to be an environmental activist, but his artwork took a sharp turn from culture in the direction of science and sustainability some years ago, as politics made him reassess what was important. Tobasaki has taken the jump into augmented reality and the visual immersive experience. His miswork is a must-see. There is a wow factor you just have to experience to appreciate. He gets his mad scientist innovative ideas from his late father and his artistic bent from his mother, who at 93 still has a steady hand creating floral watercolor studies. In Tarasaki's world, it's all about interconnectivity. He's being featured in an inaugural event for the Food and Wine Festival this weekend, showcasing the art of food and wine. He's using living things from his aquaponics garden and his skills with his kiln to create pieces of a masterpiece to be featured at the Halikolani Dinner, the festival finale, which, by the way, is already sold out. Tarasaki just opened an exhibit at the Los Angeles port in October highlighting coral conservation. And come February, Tarasaki has a show set to open in Tokyo after being chosen by the Nature Conservancy as its first artist in residence for Palmyra Island, a story of paradise lost and found. It was a devastated island, but then Nature Conservancy took it over and they... People talk about this is what Hawaii once was, 
And if you go there and you see all the wildlife and all the diversity and all those, how everything is just so harmonious and the people are just these little insignificant part, except that they made this happen, right? So that's the big difference for the modern age, I think, is that nature could use help from us now and we have the power to do it. So you watch part of that healing Yes, and then I understood what they were doing there, and then we took a lot of photography and we tried some projects there. We're going to open our first exhibit about Palmyra in Tokyo in February, and I told them that I wanted to make this a traveling exhibit, so that's our goal, is to have the inaugural exhibit there, but then travel to other parts of the world. And it used to be a secret, you know, Palmyra, but they decided that they, they want to tell the world about it because it's such a marvelous place. So I guess being there, being immersed in that natural setting has kind of helped launch you into this environmental activism, the space that you find yourself in. You know, we're here sitting upstairs in your studio here in East Honolulu, you know, walking through. We've got an aquaponic system. You've got, you know, food growing. And so you're really trying to wrap your arms around that as well, you know, with, with this message of activism. Yes, you know, I would say that um, we were, my wife and I were given a very a beautiful chance to develop the property. And so from, from the beginning of that design process, I knew I wanted to do sustainable gardening. And then I have a, I don't know where it came from, but I have a love for cooking too. So it's been trying to marriage those two and then experiment. And I would love to say that I've been diagnosed with diabetes and it's not, people are surprised because they think I'm so healthy and, and I feel like I am, but then it's given me a chance to really look at plants and see how they nourish people. And I'm trying not to take any medication, right? So with the correct understanding of plants and what they do for you, you can avoid all that and reverse it. So I have a really personal cause for this, but you know, I think that we should all embrace the food source and how we eat and how it becomes part of us and everything like that. So. And you're using things from your garden and you're creating art for an upcoming event with the Food and Wine Show. And I just think it's spectacular seeing how hard your staff is, you know, these artists are working to create something for that evening, something really special. Let me tell you, I'm so indebted to the staff that I have here and some of them maybe going on three years now. And we just treasure I for sure treasure every day and I believe you know the staff says they want to be here another 30 years so they don't have to find another job and it's like oh my god <laughs> pressure's <laughs> on for 30 years but anyway I would love that if I can do that but I have to give kudos to Roy Yamaguchi and Denise his wife they spearheaded this annual festival that they do called food and wine this year it's called the art of food and wine so i think they're trying to their idea is to for the final dinner at the halakalani they're trying to feature an artist and i'm so honored to be that featured artist the listeners aren't aware of them you know we all know roy's uh, restaurant but they have a lot of work that they do for farmers and food production and all all kinds of, this is the benefit that they do every year. So it's in, I could really say, in, in their heart to help the community. So they decided that they wanted to help artists too. So I'm 
just honored that they, they're giving us a chance to do this one. And if it works out, then there'll be an artist every year featured at this dinner. Well, I think when you come and see your studio and you see what you're trying to do here with the environment, with sustainability, and yet you're, you're using innovation with augmented reality yes. and just the most amazing technologies, you know, whether it's your ceramics, but just really pushing the envelope with these techniques. Yeah, so when you say that, <laughs> my father, suddenly my father comes to my mind because <laughs> he was a scientist and he definitely believed in, in innovation. And so I grew up with that. I'm interested in science, but I couldn't be a scientist, but you know, that drive to innovate. And I think in, in visual arts, I mean, innovation is so critical. And when you look at movements, that's how things change is through innovation. So I'm, I'm happy if I could be part of that. And I could tell you that having a young staff helps <laughs> because I, you know, I couldn't do hardly anything. I mean, I could do little things, but to do that augmented reality and understand that whole technology things, it takes the, the younger generation. And so, so blessed to have connection to that. So I would say, you know, to any of you artists out there, if you could connect to nonprofits and connect to their mission and find a way to help explore and I don't want to say illustrate that's not the right word but how to work with with them I, I think that's been become kind of a model for us so in LA we're Parlay which is here Parlay Ocean so they talk about microplastics in the ocean and everything so they were the one who connected us to Alta Sea and then Alta Sea is an incubator program for scientists uh, to develop ocean health and products, new products for the ocean. So they're looking for artists to um, open their huge space there on the pier in San Pedro. So we purposed a 40 foot container. But the more exciting thing is that this is the launch of my residency with Alta Sea. So I'll be starting to interact with the scientists. And my goal is that it's, I word that, use that word illustrating. My goal is not to simply illustrate things, but to actually influence the scientists and the artists influence each other so I don't know how I could possibly influence the scientists on their research but if I could that would be amazing and that would be a goal and if that wasn't enough on his play Terasaki is working on a mural project in Los Angeles it's theme recipes to nourish community it's a 10-year project a work in progress that is to open early next year. So did we whet your appetite? Stay tuned for more. And a post note, this week is the final week for the Hawaii Food and Wine Festival for a list of events that still have available tickets. And there's an online auction. Head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. general election on November 8th is just around the corner. Turn to HPR to follow our election coverage and study up on the candidates and issues that matter to you. Access our free voter guide at hawaiipublicradio.org vote. The global hospitality company Delaware North had just shy of $3 billion in revenue last year, which is down from the before time. In 2019, we had about 48,000 people on the payroll. 
at the peak of the pandemic, we had 900. I'm Kai Rizdal. What a multi-billion dollar company says about the labor market and inflation today. That story next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools, with more than 100 private schools accepting applications now and throughout the current school year. Find a school search at haiis.us. Ethnic diversity is something many of us are familiar with in our islands, and it's what makes musician Ray Zaragoza one of the most unique voices in the music industry. She's a Japanese-American, Mexican-Indigenous woman, best known for her feminist anthems and protest folk songs in the vein of Joni Mitchell, Carole King, and Joan Baez. Could tell I was living in a world that wasn't made for brown-skinned girls. Just you wait, it'll be your turn And in the mirror I would say to her Zaragoza will be performing on Maui tomorrow night. The Conversations, Russell Subiano. I got a chance to connect with her to talk about her music and empowering young women. Can you talk about your musical roots? Did you come from a musical family or was your musical talent something that was unique in your family? Yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. I grew up in a family that was really into musical theater. And so my dad was on Broadway when I was a kid. He played Chief Sitting Bull and Annie Get Your Gun. And so he sang in the show. He probably wouldn't consider himself a singer, but he did sing in the show. He also played trumpet when I was a kid and he was a mariachi. He was in a mariachi band. So I definitely grew up a lot around a lot of mariachi music, Mexican music. And otherwise, you know, I got really into music when I was in middle school. And just like all of my friends were just kind of like music nuts. And we like loved classic rock. And I got really into like Led Zeppelin and Queen and Crosby, Souls and Nash and the Beatles. And just like these like really amazing bands. And for me, that's like where my real love of music was born. But like the base of it was like definitely living in a being in a family that was really into musical theater. What were some of the most influential songs from your youth that started to kind of influence you when you started to write your own music, play your own music? Yeah, a couple come to mind. Cats in the Cradle, Harry Chapin. That's a song my dad listened to on repeat when I was a kid. And I loved that song. I think it was just really amazing to see how like a simple guitar, vocal, really pretty basic instrumentation and like five minutes could tell like a whole story. I just thought it was really captivating. And I I loved that. Um, Also, James Taylor's Fire and Rain. My dad listened to that song all the time when I was a kid. And then also like I was really into Avril Lavigne when I was a kid and I loved girl power music so much. And she has a song called Anything But Ordinary. Is it
And I remember like singing that song like at the top of my lungs. And I mean, pretty much all of her songs on that on that one record really changed my life because she had this way of empowering me with her music. And I knew that I wanted to empower people like that too. Like I wanted to have music that had a message that like other people could get inspired by and feel like invigorated by. Avril Lavigne, such a underrated songwriter too. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Her songs are so good, so clever. And speaking of the style of Avril Lavigne and, and a lot of the subjects of, of her songs and kind of her mm-hmm. persona, on your website, I've, I've read through your bio, and you seem to have a very similar vibe in wanting to empower young women and mm-hmm. encourage them to be proud of, of who they are. Your website says that you spent much of your early life trying to assimilate with the world around you to meet punishing mm-hmm. standards of beauty synonymous with just one color of skin and not mm-hmm. your own. How did you deal with feeling that way? Was that something that you were able to channel into your music? Absolutely. I think my music has been a huge part of my healing process. You know, being a mixed race brown woman who grew up in mostly predominantly white communities, I definitely felt like the outsider. I didn't feel pretty. I felt like, oh, like, I don't know, like if I had a crush on a boy in my class and he wasn't into me. And I just always thought that it was because I was ugly or because I have brown skin. And maybe that wasn't the reason, but like, that's what I painted in my head for my whole life was this like inferiority complex because of who I am and my racial background. And I think that through music, I've been able to really process that. And I've been able to really speak out about it because, you know, if through my songs or just the things I say as an artist could inspire another young woman to be like, oh, like, you know, she's up there, she's singing, she's doing her thing. Like I can do that too, you know, Maybe they're, you know, maybe you don't have to look a certain way to be on TV, to be in films, to be on stage. And I think that a lot has changed since I was a kid, thankfully. But when I was a kid, if you turned on the TV, there weren't a lot of kids, mixed race or brown kids on TV. And it really felt like you were, if they were, they were like playing the best friend character. or They were playing like the sidekick or something like that. And, you know, I grew up as a child actor and... I remember them always saying that like, oh, like girls like you will play the best friend. And that really messes with your head when you're a kid. And yeah, so I think that through my songs, like I have a song called The It Girl and it's about growing up being really insecure about having brown skin, about being mixed race and then kind of growing up and being like, you know, that that story doesn't serve me anymore. I need to rewrite my story. And my story is that no, the things that made me most insecure when I was a kid are actually my superpowers now. And if we can lean into those things that make us feel insecure, it's probably something that other people could use healing from as well. Do you ever feel like everywhere you go, you're just an act in the side show? Just a friend, a second thought. It's time you give them everything you got. And you've been in the entertainment industry for quite some time, and you've released several albums. Do you feel like that so-called industry beauty standard, do you think that's changing? 
or do you feel like there's still a long ways to go? I think there's still a long way to go. I do think that it's changing a bit. I think it's better now than it was when I was a kid. But, you know, I think that the the entertainment industry, I don't know, I think it's always going to need a lot of work. <laughs> I think that there's a part of the entertainment industry that's slower to change than the rest of society because, I don't know, they're, everyone's so kind of stuck in the old ways and is afraid of change, is afraid of doing anything that's going to mess with their pockets. And so, yeah, I mean, that's why I've kind of stayed independent as an artist and I don't, I haven't worked with any major, major record labels or, you know, big time management companies or anything like that because I don't want to have to compete in this way that the entertainment industry wants us all to compete. It just doesn't work for me and it's not who I am. And I think that there's a lot of other artists who are taking a stand and doing the same, but it's difficult. And sometimes we don't even realize how it affects us until we realize (laughs) it could be years in and we're like, wow, you know, I've been really insecure about this or that. And I've let people in the industry make me feel bad about myself. And, you know, I don't want to do that anymore. On your website, you describe yourself as Japanese-American, Mexican, indigenous woman. How do your ethnic heritages shape your lyrics and the messages in your songs? I definitely think being raised by an immigrant and an indigenous person definitely shaped the way I look at the world, which has shaped my songwriting. Both of my parents come from very different backgrounds. You know, my dad is from California, but he has Akima Alatham and Mexican roots. And my mom is an immigrant from Japan, who's also Taiwanese. They come from very, very different backgrounds, but they both faced prejudice and racism in their own ways. And I, I witnessed that as a kid. And it just made me realize, like, you know, both of my parents are very highly educated and very successful people. And yet they still faced so many roadblocks in their careers because of racism, blatantly. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's gotten a lot better, but I've just seen the way people treat them and second guess their abilities because of who they are and because of their background. And I think it kind of gave me a chip on my shoulder that inspired me to want to be an artist and put out a message that is really in honor of my parents. And, you know, my parents, they have worked their whole lives. They, my dad always said he was like their, his escape from poverty was education. And so both of my parents have masters and they've been working and my dad's done many different careers, but he's a lawyer and an actor. And my mom is a college professor and they worked so hard to provide for me and my siblings. And then because of my parents' hard work have been put in an incredibly privileged position to be able to do art full time and be able to pursue my dreams. And now I feel like it's my duty as like the daughter to just really, I don't know, do what I can to change the world through music in honor of my parents and everything that they went through to put me where I am now. Thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thanks so much. That was musician Ray Zaragoza talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. She's going to perform at the Maui Arts and Cultural Center tomorrow night. She was originally set to perform in the McCoy Studio Theater at the MAC, but it's been moved to the Castle Theater. We'll have links on our conversation page of our website later today. They were singing, stand up, stand up.
That wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear more about the Navy's report on shutting down Red Hill. Got some feedback? Share your comments or questions. Calling or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Email or connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>